You're listening to the free abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. American coal. Nuclear energy. Natural gas. Hydro. Solar power. Wind turbines. We're becoming a monumental exporter of natural gas. This boom in the United States is not a bubble that's going away. The oil's still there. I'd rather pump it from another country and save ours, and then when the rest of the world runs out, hey, guess what? We can still turn on our lights. We've run into a problem where we have constraints, where there are limits now. The new phase we're going into related to the exhaustion of these resources, there's no replacement. This is a one-shot affair, and we're unprepared for it. Really, we do not have very much more time to get a handle on this problem. It's better to get to a renewable future, a sustainable future, sooner rather than later. Get there before we do the environmental damage, not after. For June 12, 2019, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. In previous episodes of this show, most recently in episode 90 with Pete Fuller, we've discussed how the energy transition is forcing wholesale power markets to change and adapt due to various pressures, like the influx of distributed energy resources, or DERs, such as rooftop solar, storage systems, and electric vehicles, which are eating into the market share of conventional utility generation and demanding a more flexible system, or incentives to keep nuclear power plants running when they would otherwise be retired, which can distort wholesale power prices and prevent renewables from taking their place, or utility procurement processes and constructs like capacity markets that were designed for a different era and which are now starting to cause some parts of the grid to be overbuilt while undervaluing and preventing the incursion of new resources. We also talked about how we might transform wholesale power markets so we can harness them into helping us address climate change and deliver clean power by recognizing the attributes of clean power in market pricing and deliberately integrating and encouraging distributed energy resources at the wholesale power market level. But what if that's not really enough? Our guest today argues that state policies, like Renewable Portfolio Standards, or RPS, have an important role to play in decarbonizing the grid because they can be designed to obtain that outcome. Since we've decided that we need to decarbonize our power grids in order to reduce carbon emissions and combat climate change, and designating that as a social priority, then it makes sense for us to set state renewable portfolio standards to mandate the procurement of clean renewable power, to ensure that renewables can increase their market share and eventually displace fossil fuels. Not only is there nothing wrong with that, he argues, but in fact, it's essential, because environmental regulation isn't really the role of FERC, the federal regulator. That role is reserved for the states. To present this defense of state mandates, we have with us Miles Farmer, a senior attorney with NRDC and the Sustainable FERC Project. He focuses on making the electricity system cleaner and more efficient, practices before regulatory commissions and regional grid operators, and is especially interested in the ways that state energy policies intersect with federal power markets and how to improve the design and the structure of future power markets. He came prepared to this interview with a whole truckload of deep thoughts that I know you'll appreciate as much as I did, particularly as contrasted with episode 90, and it's a treat to have him on the show. Then in the news segment, we'll review new state laws designed to encourage renewable energy in the U.S. states of Washington, Colorado, and South Carolina. We'll update the ongoing attempt to bail out the coal strip power plant in Montana, and we'll mark a new tipping point in Texas where renewables are growing quickly. But first, our conversation with Miles Farmer, recorded May 9th, 2019. So let's bring him into the conversation now. Welcome, Miles, to the Energy Transition Show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You pitched the idea for this episode to me after listening to episode 90 with Pete Fuller, 
which was about how to adapt and transform electricity markets, especially wholesale power markets, so that they can really do the heavy lifting and addressing climate change and help deliver clean power, as well as do a better job of integrating and encouraging distributed energy resources. So before we dive into your ideas about the roles of state policies versus markets as decarbonization tools, I just want to give you a chance to respond to any of the ideas that Pete expressed where you might have a different view. Yeah, so first off, let me just say that I really respect Pete Fuller. He's one of the experts who helped show me the ropes as I began working in New York before the Public Service Commission and NISO. And beyond just generally being a really nice guy, he's super sharp, has an incredibly detailed knowledge of the power sector. But I do have a different take from him on state policies and their interrelation with federal markets, which is what spurred my outreach to you after listening to your show with him. In my view, there is an often underappreciated logic to state policies, and many are efficient, effective, market-driven, and have been honed through years of experience by state regulators to deliver durable political and economic outcomes. And importantly, and this is, I think, where I differ the most from Pete, I think that state policies and federal markets can function effectively together so long as FERC and the RTOs avoid rash overreactions to those state policies in an attempt to override their economic consequences. And instead, I think, FERC and the RTO should just let the effects of state policies flow through, which is in fact what has happened since the inception of the markets. I would basically argue that state policies and policies from other regulators like DOE or EPA have always affected FERC's markets. And that's not to say that FERC and the RTOs can't do things to further enhance the efficiency of their markets in response to state policies, or that states can't design their policies in ways that work better or worse than FERC's markets. But the important point is that I think FERC and the RTO should welcome the ability of states to shape the markets. All right, here, and I just want to clarify here, when you say RTOs, we're talking about wholesale markets because our ISOs are also, it's not just RTOs. Right, right. Yeah. RTOs and ISOs, and wholesale ISOs. markets that are supervised by FERC. Exactly. Okay. So let's talk about the state policies that are aimed at increasing the share of renewables or otherwise cleaning up grid power. So what are some examples of state policies that do that job as well as kind of the wholesale market approach? Yeah, so there are a pretty wide range of state policies. The most high profile and often most important are renewable portfolio standard programs, pollution regulations set by state environmental regulators on chiefly fossil plants. States also administer energy efficiency programs and other regulation of retail utilities to achieve clean energy outcomes. There are also policies like the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative, which is regional program that many different states in the Northeast participate in that sells allowances for GHG emissions. And, you know, it's kind of the high profile cap and trade program we have in the East. California has a similar program. Right. And then there are also similar policies at the federal level 
that have also had an external influence on RTO markets. The investment in production tax credits for renewables are a great example of that. The Department of Energy has R&D incentives. So yeah, pretty wide range of clean energy policies. Great. Okay. So yeah, I just wanted to clarify like exactly what kind of policies are we talking about here. So what are some of the ways that state mandates are actually better than markets in your view? And I don't know if that's actually the right framing sort of mandates versus markets. It seems to be sort of the term of art here, but in what cases would you say that state mandates are actually more effective than markets? Yeah. So I would say I disagree with that kind of framing of mandates or markets. Okay. But I'm actually glad you framed it that way because it is often framed that way. And it illustrates what, in my view, are a couple of common misconceptions about state policies. And the first is that FERC and the regional grid operator markets that it supervises are the only markets out there, when in fact, many state policies are markets. That's most clearly the case with Reggie, which is a regional market for carbon allowances. But it's also true of renewable portfolio standards and other state policies. In New York, for example, NYSERDA, which is a state authority that does a lot of work in the energy space, its renewable portfolio standard is operated by NYSERDA, but it's an annual competitive solicitation for renewable energy credit contracts. And so that itself is a market that is not so different from the RTOs. Mm. But the big difference is that the winners are selected based on factors that are chosen based on the state's goals that aren't simply limited to services of delivering energy or reserves or that sort of thing. Instead, it's about choosing which energy developers will deliver emissions attributes the state's looking for, other goals like reducing environmental impacts, which is often, for example, why you might see a difference between the way nuclear or renewables are regulated at the state level, other goals like innovation as well. Hmm. And I guess another misconception about the relation between states and the FERC markets is that it's an either or proposition. I think, again, they can kind of function in harmony. And I also find it interesting that the same economists who tend to say, well, these state programs are very inefficient or you know, they're not the best way of reducing emissions, they strongly endorse R&D at the federal level. And state policies are actually set up with a similar problem in mind. If you just allowed laissez-faire market competition, a lot of the most transformative technologies might never develop. And what we've seen with federal R&D are enormous successes like the creation of the internet. And state policies are designed with similar issues in mind. Offshore wind is a great example of that in New York. New York adopted a policy specific to offshore wind after extensive study where they determined that the best way to drive down costs in the industry, based on an external study from the University of Delaware Special Initiative on Offshore Wind, was that by guaranteeing a pipeline of projects, they could get the investment necessary to up the scale of that market 
to do things like invest in port infrastructure, invest in a supply chain that would bring the soft costs down for that industry. Hmm. And so without that sort of technology-specific commitment, you might end up with a higher cost energy mix in the long run, even if analysis that might look at these shorter run values would say, well, the cost of offshore wind as compared to some other technologies that reduce emissions might currently be a bit higher. You know, I have to wonder here if there isn't sort of a distinguishing criteria in which, you know, you could say that state policies are better adapted to encouraging certain services or markets that are just harder to implement at a wholesale market level. Yeah, I think that's right. And I also think this brings up another struggle that we've seen as FERC has gone down the path of potentially seeking to insulate its markets from these policies, Hmm. is that when you look at the need for a diverse mix of resources, for example, the FERC-administered markets aren't necessarily very good at delivering that. In the East, what you've seen is the formation of mandatory capacity markets, these markets for availability from power plants that have been developed with the view that they're needed to incent adequate entry of resources for reliability. But those markets themselves are actually designed in a way that heavily favors gas plants. And what you've seen in markets that rely heavily on them, like PJM, where there aren't as many state policies influencing the mix is that the entry in PJM has been almost exclusively gas. And you just don't have a federal market that is very good at addressing other needs of the system. And states are really well within their rights and extremely smart to look at emissions and environmental impacts because the costs are enormous and they're not accounted for in FERC's markets. Yeah, and that sort of explains why the PJM interconnection has a 30% reserve margin, <laughs> whereas the Texas ERCOT market, which is you know a fully deregulated, very competitive market without a capacity market, it's an energy-only market, has only a 5% reserve margin this coming summer. So that's a pretty stark bit of evidence right there for what you're talking about. Yeah, indeed. And I mean, that's a whole nother can of worms that we could probably go down on a different episode. <laughs> yeah. but it also relates to a series of, I would say, poor decisions that PJM has made in designing its capacity market. Yeah, for sure. Increased the glut of oversupply and cost for customers. For sure. But one of the big problems that's currently playing out is that PJM has sought to insulate its markets from these state policies. And that itself has created a lot of uncertainty and I would say is risking driving that reserve margin ever higher Hmm. because FERC has raised the prospect that perhaps the capacity that's supported by state policies might not be counted in PJM's market, which could cause customers to have to buy capacity from other resources, ignoring the value of the resources that the states are supporting and thereby increasing customer costs by potentially billions of dollars. Wow. Yeah, I suspect we're headed for a bit of a showdown there, one way or the other. I mean, I think it does eventually get us even beyond the argument over sort of 
federal authority through FERC versus state authority to set things like RPSs and gets us into sort of a different territory. It's not just a jurisdictional question. It's actually a question about social goals and good market design and so on. But yeah, that is perhaps a different topic. (laughs) Yeah, but it does ultimately come down to the efficiency of the markets. Yeah. And to one of kind of the central points where I would take a different take than Pete. You know, on the episode where you discussed state policies with him, I think he contended that without some sort of evolution or way to correct for these state policies that we might be headed for a market crash. Yeah. And I would say actually the opposite is true, that there won't be a market crash if the effects of the state policies are allowed to flow through to the market. But if instead FERC and the RTOs try to insulate their markets from the states, that might itself be the cause of major problems that necessitate overhaul later. Hmm. Because if all of those state resources are ignored, eventually the reserve margins will get so bloated that the capacity market rules will need to be overhauled. And that uncertainty caused by everyone wondering what will the rules be, that itself could be the crash. Whereas if instead we just allow the effects of external policies to influence prices as they always have, in fact, sometimes to a much greater degree when you look at the amount of fossil fuel subsidies that have influenced the system since its inception, the Price-Anderson Act, which is an enormous source of support for nuclear plants. They've always influenced the market prices, and if we just let them flow through it, I think it will be okay. That's a really interesting take, and it does kind of turn the argument on its head in a way. All right, so beyond the misconception that wholesale markets are the only markets, what is the second misconception that you mentioned? Yeah, so... I think we may have already discussed this, actually, I accidentally kind of skipped ahead to that, but it was that that state policies or RTO markets are an either or proposition. Right. You know, it's mandates or markets, but instead I actually think they work together and they have an interrelation. So take New York state policies where you have NYSERDA administering these annual solicitations for renewables projects. The price that renewables projects can deliver in those solicitations is inherently influenced by FERC's markets. So where locational prices for energy are higher, for example, that's going to allow a renewable project to bid in its renewable energy credits at a lower price. And thus you can have the locational and other factors influencing the state market and then vice versa where you have value that states have decided certain resources provide, then those resources will earn money under the state programs and that will allow them to outcompete other resources in FERC's markets. Mm-hmm. But that's actually kind of the intent behind letting states regulate pollution. And you know, we never would have said, for example, that when the states in the Northeast established the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative, which required fossil plants to buy allowances for their carbon pollution, that FERC would somehow adjust out 
the prices bid by those plants as though they were the prices without the carbon pollution allowance, that would have subverted the intent of the program and prevented it from influencing the resource mix in the way it was supposed to. So Reggie is really kind of the paradigmatic example of a policy that works seamlessly with FERC's markets. Mm. And there are two markets working together. Gotcha. Yeah. All right. Well, so let's talk about the arguments against state policies. I mean, I suppose the first is because they're not generally market-based solutions, so they must be in tension with markets. For example, as Pete and I discussed in episode 90, out-of-market subsidies like zero-emission credits or ZEX for nuclear plants can distort market prices in two ways. First, by circumventing the market signal that nuclear is now expensive relative to new wind and solar plants. And second, by keeping nuclear plants in business when they ought to be retired, which effectively prevents wind and solar from increasing their market share because there's a nuclear plant sitting there occupying that space. So if we think a state policy is the way to go to solve a particular problem, how do we prevent it from distorting the wholesale markets? So first, let me just table the particulars of the zero emissions credit policies, because I do think that there are some big downsides to that type of a policy. But first, I want to address this deeper question of whether it's fair to accuse state policies writ large of, quote, distorting the markets, or whether, as I've explained a bit already, they should be taken as part of the economic landscape that naturally influences prices. Okay. And I would argue here, the real distortion is that the value of environmental benefits or emissions or other factors that are very important to societal goals are not accounted for in FERC's markets. And that's the way the system was set up. FERC does not view itself as an environmental regulator when it's setting up the markets. It leaves that task to other actors, including states. And so when the states then do their jobs and they decide that certain types of resources are preferable to others because of the societal goals that those states have, I don't think that's a distortion. I think that's a feature of the system. Hmm. Yeah. And the other thing is that this discussion around state policies distorting the markets It came onto the scene recently in response to policies that states have set up to address emissions and other environmental goals. And I would say in part that's due to the fact that the participants in FERC's markets are largely incumbent generator owners of fossil And those generation owners have benefited from subsidies set up by states and the federal government for a long time that have been completely ignored and treated as a a feature of the landscape. I mean, we we protest (laughs) NRDC and Sustainable FERC Project, Earth Justice, a bunch of groups protested PJM's proposal to adjust its market in response to state policies. And one of the things we pointed out we had an expert affidavit from Doug Koplow that just detailed the billions and billions of dollars in subsidies that have gone to fossil fuel. And those are only the explicit ones. You know, in addition, work by Joe Daniel and others 
has identified something called self-scheduling, which is fossil plants that are not economic in FERC's markets, but they offer in anyway. And then they recover the costs of uneconomic operation through state retail rate making policies. So, you know, it's interesting that the view of states as, quote, distorting the markets kind of came into being mainly targeting environmental policies when states have always influenced the markets from the beginning. Yeah. Yeah, all right. Just one other point here is that it's really just completely impossible to unwind the state policies from the FERC markets. So, you know, some of the high profile renewable portfolio standards or zero emissions credits have got the RTOs and FERC thinking about doing that. But there are other things that states do. States establish labor laws. They have taxes. Importantly, with regard to power production, they are in charge of siting plants for construction. Mm. They do all the permitting. So I don't think anyone would say that the way a state does its permitting process distorts the markets. That's just a feature of market prices. If it costs you a lot of money or delay permitting process, that influences the prices you offer in at in the RTOs. And I don't think it's really any different when states are saying, we're going to pay you for an emissions benefit you provide. That's something that's also outside of FERC's jurisdiction and that states are responsible for. And it's a valid input on those market prices. We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. Our full episodes cover much more and are generally at least an hour long. In addition to two full new episodes each month, subscribers can also view interactive transcripts of our interviews and explore our extensive show notes with links to all of the research resources and news items for each episode. Our subscription podcast works in all podcast apps and players, including iTunes, and is downloadable. The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition Show were free and always will be, so if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information we can produce, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. 100% of the revenue that makes the Energy Transition Show possible comes from listener subscriptions. To become a subscriber and enjoy our full offerings, just point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and click the Become a Member button. There are several ways to become a subscriber. Annual subscriptions, which include full access to our entire back catalog of full-length episodes, are just $60 a year or $5 a month. Monthly subscriptions are just $6.99 a month and give you access to the two most recent episodes. Single episodes can be purchased for $7 each. We also offer half-priced annual subscriptions for universities. Students can purchase individual subscriptions, or professors can purchase bulk subscriptions for their classes. Numerous educators now use the Energy Transition Show as coursework, and their testimonials are available on request. And finally, we offer site licenses with group discounts on annual subscriptions for all members of institutions, such as corporations, nonprofits, and universities. So join us today and support our ad-free, hormone-free, organic, handcrafted, artisanal podcast featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. Now a quick look at some recent news items. And in keeping with the theme of this show, we're going to start with some new state policies. Item 1. 
On May 7th, Governor Jay Inslee of Washington State signed into law a requirement that the state obtain 100% of its energy from clean sources by 2045, making it the fifth U.S. state or territory to make such a commitment following Hawaii, California, New Mexico, and Puerto Rico. Eight more U.S. states are considering similar policies. Among other things, the new law requires Washington to stop using coal power by 2025, increases funding for weatherization programs for low-income households, and aims to make the benefits of the clean energy transition, such as electric vehicle charging stations, available to all communities. The emphasis on EVs is particularly important because the state already gets 73% of its power from renewables, including 60% from hydro, and transportation accounts for 43% of the state's carbon emissions. So the opportunity to reduce emissions by switching to EVs is clear. Item 2. In early May, Colorado legislators passed a comprehensive utility bill that subjects tri-state generation and transmission, a major generation and transmission utility that supplies power. Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Our theme music was by Mike Sugar and Mark Burnfield, who you can find online at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network. <laughs>